0: From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As Congress takes a break to celebrate Independence Day, energy independence is shaping up as a key issue for the fall elections. Some lawmakers are calling for more drilling at home. Others say conservation and renewables are the way to go. This election is very intentionally going to be framed around the
1: question of energy policy. It's on voters' minds. They have conversations about it every day. They're mad about rising gas prices. They're mad about our dependence on foreign oil question is which direction should we go
0: also camping with creature comforts heated tents and down comforters it's great except for the creatures
2: oh we've been attacked by birds,
1: attacked by
3: birds. deluxe
2: camping has gone to like not so deluxe we had a dead bird on our doorstep this morning it's fun
0: we'll have those stories and more this week on living on earth stick
2: around Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As members of Congress head to their home districts for the July break, they seem to have one eye on the price of gas and the other on the calendar. November 7th, Election Day, is just around the corner, and energy is shaping up as the key domestic item on voters' minds. Republican leaders want more offshore drilling to increase domestic supplies of oil and natural gas. Leading Democrats say Americans would be better off using more renewable fuels and conservation. Which argument will appeal to voters who are paying near-record prices at the pump? The answer could tip the balance of who controls Congress. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports from Washington. For 25 years, most of the
4: U.S. coastline has been off-limits to offshore drilling. But in fiery debate in Congress, California Republican Richard Pombo told the House of Representatives that should end. I'm telling you, it's time to stop saying no. It's time to move forward with energy policy that makes sense for all of America, not just a small group of special interests who want to destroy our economy. And the House agreed. The close vote would end the moratorium on offshore drilling in favor of a bill to let states decide whether they want oil rigs offshore. Critics say that tilts the playing field, making it easier to allow drills than to keep them out. Democratic House Leader Nancy Pelosi of California says it's also an unbalanced approach to energy.
3: When we talk about reducing our dependence on foreign oil, we talk about that. We talk about alternative energy. It's not just about drill, drill, drill. But
4: so far, drilling has ruled in the House energy debate. In addition to the offshore vote, the House also voted to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, known as ANWR, to oil and gas exploration. Neither bill is likely to pass the Senate, but both were symbolic victories for House members who want to show voters they're doing something about energy prices by increasing energy supply. And both bills were championed by Richard Pombo, who chairs the powerful Committee on House Resources. The underlying issue here is is how do we increase domestic production of, of energy? Uh, in order to meet what is a very real crisis the, that we're going through. And you know, part of that is Anwar, part of it is the deep sea, uh, oil and gas exploration. Uh, you know, over the last 30 years, we have locked up more and more of our own resources, and as a result of that, have become more dependent on foreign countries for, for our energy. Pombo's push to open more federal land to extraction wins him support from the oil and gas industry. Which has given him nearly $230,000 in campaign cash. It's also made Pombo an election year target for environmental groups like the League of Conservation Voters. League director Gene Karpinski is betting a good chunk of his group's resources on a campaign to defeat Pombo and a half dozen other lawmakers he calls the Oil Slick Seven. Karpinski's happy to have an environmental issue foremost in voters' minds and says energy issues could be the deciding factor in many races.
1: This election is very intentionally going to be framed around the question of energy policy. It's on voters' minds. They have conversations about it every day. They're mad about rising gas prices. They're mad about our dependence on foreign oil. The question is, which direction should we go? Should we drill and destroy our most beautiful lands, or or should we move forward for clean, renewable energy policy?
4: Democrats think the energy debate could fuel their run to take control of Congress. Republicans hold the House by just 15 seats and the Senate by just six. South Carolina's James Clyburn says Democrats will use the summer to remind voters what's happened to energy prices with Republicans in control.
0: We've got $3 per gallon of gasoline. We've got $9 billion in subsidies to the oil companies. And Democrats are seeking new directions for our energy program.
4: Poll after poll shows energy prices among the top voter concerns. But it's less clear who benefits. Does a voter paying three bucks for a gallon of gas support a Democrat's ideas on energy efficiency or a Republican's plan for more drilling? The American Petroleum Institute put that question to some focus groups. The API lobbies for the oil and gas industry. Spokesperson Lisa Flavin says the higher the price, the more willing people are to support drilling.
1: So now what we're seeing is a bit of a shift with the high gasoline prices. People are saying, yeah, you know, we need to reevaluate that. And, yeah, we need to look to America to develop our own supplies.
4: Environmental groups say most people still don't want offshore drilling. And they point to polls showing most Americans oppose drilling in the Arctic Refuge and instead favor alternative energy and more fuel-efficient cars. Sierra Club executive director Carl Pope says high prices probably don't change minds so much as draw attention to the issue. It doesn't fundamentally, if you look at at what the public wants, the public still believes that renewable energy is much better than oil and gas. The public still doesn't want to see more nuclear power. So what this creates is pressure on legislators and politicians to act, whether they act wisely or not, is always the question. And what's happening right now is here in this town they're not, but what high gas prices do is put the issue on the agenda. If Pope is right about that, it means candidates will face an energized electorate and a lot of questions about how the country will satisfy its appetite for fuel. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
0: Big business is making some big plays in the alternative energy arena. Oil giant BP is teaming up with Caltech to make cheaper solar cells using nanotechnology. The company believes the novel process can help relieve the current worldwide shortage of silicon. And just when we were getting used to putting ethanol in our tanks, now there's a new biofuel coming down the pike. BP and DuPont have announced plans to start selling butanol. Now, if butanol sounds a lot like ethanol, it is. They are chemically related, but butanol delivers more miles to the gallon. It's not corrosive like ethanol, and it can be burned in gasoline engines without modifications. Right now, butanol costs more than gasoline, but there are new processes that could make it much cheaper, and that's what BP and DuPont seem to be counting on. Andy Aden is a process engineer at the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, Colorado, and specializes in biomass energy sources. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steve. So, Andy, BP and DuPont say they're going to start selling this next year in Great Britain, but I'd never heard of butanol until they announced this deal. Um,
5: I think it's actually caught quite a few people off guard, and people are asking the questions, should I be interested in this? Why is this special? Uh, how close is this to ethanol? How different is this to ethanol? I think it's got a lot of people asking a lot of questions, but I think that's a good thing.
0: What's really exciting about butanol?
5: The really exciting thing about butanol is the fact that we have another choice for a biofuel. Um, before out there, you know, we've had one choice for fuel. Well, a couple choices, gasoline or diesel. Now we've got choices in the form of of E10 or E85, and these biofuels, uh, in addition to being more beneficial for the environment, are becoming a lot more economically attractive with the high price of petroleum. Now you've got butanol coming onto the scene, and, and it gives consumers an even larger spectrum and diversity of choices for fuels, and that's something that we've never had in the United States before, and so it's really exciting.
0: How is the biobutanol that BP and DuPont are talking about, how is this different from the butanol being uh, produced in the United States now by the chemical companies?
5: Well, like uh, butanol is currently produced from petroleum, specifically from either propylene or ethylene. DuPont is looking to do it biologically, doing it from biomass sources, either corn stalks and husks or corn or sugar beets, something along those lines. It's through a simple fermentative process that's actually been around for quite some time. Uh, this was done commercially you know, back in the early 1900s through the 1950s uh, to produce not only butanol but other solvents as well, acetone, ethanol. And other byproduct, organic acids and such.
0: So the same process that makes butanol, in fact, can be used to make ethanol, huh?
5: Well, for biobutanol, and, and it's produced by a fermentation, the same way that ethanol is produced by a fermentation. You just simply use different organisms. For ethanol using a yeast, butanol is produced using a bacteria.
0: Explain for me, though, what the difference would be for consumers who go for these products. If there's ethanol coming out of one pump and butanol coming out of another, what's the choice that I should make as a consumer?
5: Well, maybe that's the case of asking the question of what benefits does butanol have over ethanol and vice versa. Butanol has a higher energy content than ethanol, pretty close to gasoline, within 85 or 90 percent. So you don't get into the lost fuel mileage issues that you do potentially with ethanol that's one potential benefit for using it another one is that it integrates well into the existing fuel infrastructure with petroleum and gasoline
0: uh, andy i need you to help look inside the thinking process at dupont and bp they've announced this partnership to go forward to produce butanol as a fuel sell it in the united kingdom What's their game plan? Are they going to use the old process that uh, is used by chemical companies or have they got a new process up their sleeve? And are they going to sell this just as butanol or do you think they'll sell it as some kind of a blend?
5: If I were to get into their minds, I would say they'd probably be starting at some sort of, you know, fuel blend uh, to meet the EU requirements for 2010. To be able to do it in the time frame they're talking about, which is within the next couple of years, they're going to have to use existing technology, perhaps tweaked, I guess is how they would probably say it. But it's going to be mostly based off of past research. But they do have you know being the large companies that both BP and DuPont are, they have the resources and the and the know-how to be able to throw personnel as, as well as other biochemical tools uh, at this type of problem and really make some
0: significant technological achievements. I understand this this gentleman uh, David Ramy of uh, Environmental Energy has come up with a new process uh, to make butanol and He's burned it, actually, in a car, driven it all the way across the country. What's his process, and how does that differ from the present process that's used when butanol is made for chemical reactions? Uh, what David Ramey
5: is doing to improve the process is to take the the fermentation reaction and to separate it into two different reactions. So instead of having one bacteria that does this this reaction inefficiently, He takes two separate organisms and separates them out into two reactions and does it more efficiently where you can get potentially higher yields uh, in a shorter amount of time.
0: Andy Aden is a process engineer at the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, Colorado. Thanks so much, Andy.
5: Thank you, Steve. It's been a
0: pleasure. Coming up, probing the depths of Lake Erie's dead zones. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Nearly every summer, the bottom waters of Lake Erie's central and western basins become dead zones. They lose so much oxygen that fish simply can't survive. U.S. and Canadian scientists are now in their second year of a research program to study Lake Erie's dead zone, and Mari Saito has our report. No,
1: I'll
4: give to us last. We'll throw it on top. Get your day on the list. Oh.
1: Joe Hur and his crew haul crates of iced yellow perch from the deck of his boat and onto the back of his son's SUV. Lake Erie has been the source of his family's livelihood for decades. This gray-bearded fisherman has had to find ways to catch fish in Lake Erie through good times and bad.
6: When I started fishing, it looked like coffee with cream in it back in the 50s. And in the 60s, it was really bad. But now it's blue, clear.
1: Almost too clear. On this Indian summer day, the lower layer of Lake Erie's central basin is hypoxic. That means the bottom few meters of water in much of the lake have extremely low levels of oxygen.
6: Strictly by the weather gets hot, the water gets trapped down below, stays ice cold, loses its oxygen, and fish just swim away from it.
1: Lake Erie's dead zone has been around for decades. But accumulations of agricultural runoff and excess sewage made the lake's hypoxia so dramatic. In the 1970s, the U.S. and Canada signed agreements to try to end it. Reductions of phosphates and laundry detergents and municipal water treatment plants have cut the amount of phosphorus going into Lake Erie by more than half. The dead zone seemed to improve, but recently scientists have found disturbing signs.
4: In the western part of the lake, we have these toxic and harmful algal blooms occurring more frequently, much like they did in the late 60s and early 70s.
1: Gerald Matazoff heads Case Western Reserve University's geology department.
4: In the central basin, we have low oxygen, much like we had during the late 60s and early 70s. And in the eastern part of the lake, not too much this year or last year, but certainly in the last few years, we've had significant outbreaks of avian botulism. Now, what we don't know is whether or not these are all related or whether they're all independent and they're all the result of simultaneous events that happen to be dominant in certain parts of the lake at the same time.
1: Fifteen miles north of Cleveland, government scientists look for clues in Lake Erie's waters. They hoist a small metal crane onto the deck of their boat. The crane drops a couple of handfuls of mud from the lake bottom into a gray plastic tub... Two scientists dig through it looking for life. See
6: anything? Some flower
7: element? Yep. So there's a, the oxygen here, Scott, was a half milligram per liter is pretty low.
1: Oxygen saturation of a half milligram per liter of water is very low. Most fish can't survive anything below two milligrams. Stuart Ludson is an ecologist with the Great Lakes Environmental Research Laboratory.
7: Part of what we're looking at too is how does insect larvae vary in areas of high and low oxygen the expectation would be that during severe hypoxic or anoxic events, these organisms would die and be unavailable for food.
1: Lutzen believes studying the lake's food web may reveal clues. Researchers started to find low oxygen spots in Lake Erie in late June. Lutzen says the dead zone forced fish off the bottom, home to most of their prey.
7: They now are cut off from access to their necessary food might be forced to live up in the water column and feed on maybe suboptimal prey like zooplankton, which might in turn lead to reduced growth. So those are kinds of things that we're going to try to get at.
1: Lupton and his team use sonar and underwater sensors to analyze the lake's waters. But the best way to find what's avoiding Lake Erie's low oxygen depths is to cast a fishing net and see what comes up.
6: We're good to fish.
1: OK. After 10 minutes of trawling a large net, the scientists pull in their catch. They shake the flopping fish into a plastic bucket.
6: No. Oh. <laughs> For a gross underestimate.
1: The fish will be measured, their stomach contents analyzed. Scientists hope all this work will help them understand the dead zone well enough to someday be able to forecast it, reduce it, and ultimately make predictions of its impact on Lake Erie's booming fish industry.
6: Fish. White
8: perch, yellow perch
7: perch four perch. Yeah. A little goby. Gobi.
1: The goby fish and zebra mussels are among 170 types of invasive species in the Great Lakes. Shipping vessels are blamed for bringing transplants into these waters at a rate of more than 1 it's per kind of year. Out. Scientists are eager to understand how these new residents are impacting Lake Erie's dead zone, but answers to the lake's quandaries could mean new challenges. Researchers admit stopping the influx of invasive species and finding new places to cut pollution flow into Lake Erie would be difficult. Back at the dock, Joe Herr and his crew laugh when they hear people worrying about Lake Erie's dead zone. Lake Erie fisheries are more productive than all the other Great Lakes combined. And Herr has lasted nearly 50 years on Lake Erie because he has adapted to its changes. These days, he uses a depth finder to look for Lake Erie's dead zone and plans accordingly.
6: We know where it should be, so we go set our nets ahead of time and wait for it to, and herd to fish to us.
1: While the dead zone may help an old fisherman learn new tricks, her is carefully watching to make sure Lake Erie's ongoing changes don't negatively impact his daily catch. For Living on Earth, I'm Mari Saito at the southeastern edge of Lake Erie.
8: <laughs> What's that? <laughs> are um, <laughs> are
0: fishermen all along the eastern seaboard won't soon forget the 1980s, a time when lines came up empty for striped bass. The species had been fished to near extinction, and the fight to bring it back has gone down as one of the greatest environmental success stories. Dick Russell was on the front lines of that effort and now anticipates a second conflict on the horizon that fishermen might not be ready for. He's an environmental journalist and author of Striper Wars, an American fish story. I went out on the water with Dick Russell near Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and asked him what it took to bring the fish back.
6: Eventually, it took pretty much a complete shutting down of all the fishing along the Atlantic coast. Striped bass migrates uh, from North Carolina all the way to Maine, sometimes even to Nova Scotia. And uh, then eventually the state of Maryland... Uh, which is where the, most of the ch- stripers on the Chesapeake Bay, uh, excuse me, on the Atlantic coast come from, um, declared a five-year moratorium. And when they shut down the fishery in the spawning grounds, um, I knew that that was going to that was going to do it. That's, I didn't know the fish would ever come back to the extent they have today, but it took a near total shutdown of uh, the entire Atlantic coast fishery to uh, to do it.
0: Now, one of the people that was involved uh, in the bass recovery effort uh, is what a postman. His name is Jim white and i understand he has a whale of a tail
6: he really does it's it's one of those magical stories that kind of has no explanation and um he had become bitter enemies with a sports fisherman who owned a bait and tackle shop named uh, joe malica and they become enemies because they took different sides on the moratorium question whether rhode island needed to shut down fishing or not for a period of time and malica didn't think so and and um one day jim was out fishing and, and his reel broke this was after the moratorium had been declared in Rhode Island, Maryland, and elsewhere. And uh, so we needed to get it fixed. And the closest place he could do that was this bait and tackle shop that Malika owned. So he went there and, and he saw this beautiful fishing rod on the wall. And he asked Malika about it. And Malika said, You want one? I'll make it for you. Jim thought, Oh, geez, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. We, we're enemies. And, but anyway, he said, Okay, I, I just love this rod. I got to have this rod. So Malika made it for him. He came back, he got it, went striped bass fishing, I think that same day. This is a time when there're very few striped bass around and on every cast he made he hooked into an incredible bass with this rod. And he was he was shaking. I mean he he said he looked up at the heavens at one point he said, "Lord, if you're going to take me, take me now." He just hadn't had an experience like this and Lord knows how long. So he, he caught all these fish, and he went, finally he went running back to Malika's tackle shop. And he says, he says, what did you do to this rod? Is it, is it haunted? What did you, I, I can't believe what's happening. And said, Malika says, oh, I think it's just a lucky rod for you. Well, he went on catching striped bass when nobody else could with this rod, all kinds of great adventures for 79 uh, consecutive uh, trips. And um, on the 80th trip, the spell was broken somehow. He didn't catch a bass. And he happened to look up in his logbook. He kept a logbook of all the meetings he'd attended and, you know, kind of everything that he'd been doing and fishing for a period of years. And he, he just, for some reason, started counting up the meetings that he and Malika had attended. And they had gone together to precisely 79 meetings, and there had never been an 80th. And that's exactly the number of trips where, he with that magic rod that Joe Malika made for him, uh... That's how many uh, stripers he caught. Now, they became friends again, and they remain fast friends to this day. And that has to be a fish story. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful fish story.
0: <laughs> what's, what's the trick to catching one of these fish?
6: Well, it's kind of like being in the right place at the right time. and uh, Plus, you just never know what they're going to do. They'll confound you at any moment. If you hook into one, they'll they'll wrap around a rock and and uh, you know just do everything they can to shake loose and and shake you up. And at the same time, it's it's this uh, just very special feeling inside about a striped bass. Uh, I, I I think it's a soulful feeling, and and um, that's what you know made them worth, uh, worth fighting for long ago and uh, still today.
0: Dick, I understand that maybe the striped bass is is
6: headed for another crash? Well, we hope not, but there's a a big, big problem happening again today in the Chesapeake Bay, and it's ecosystem-related. Almost 70% of the striped bass are suffering from a bacterial infection, and it's sort of a chronic wasting disease that uh, gives them lesions and also impacts their internal organs. It's being studied extensively by scientists from uh, all along the coast, And it appears to be stress-related, and that stress appears to be coming from the fact that they're not getting enough to eat. A lot of the fish that you're seeing in the Chesapeake today, and even along the Atlantic coast as they migrate, are very emaciated. And um, they're turning to things like uh, lobsters and blue crabs and things that aren't as nutritious for them as this little, bony, oily, inedible fish called a menhaden, which uh, has always been the preferred food of choice for striped bass. And uh, there aren't as many menhaden around, and now it appears that they are being overfished in the Chesapeake. And um, menhaden are used, they're they're brought back and they're ground up into fish meal, uh, which is used to feed chickens and hogs and also for aquaculture. And then, uh, they're also being used increasingly for, uh, for, uh, the oil, fish oil, because they're a very oily fish and, uh, it's being used for omega-3, um, vitamin supplements.
0: So the person who buys that, uh, capsule containing omega-3 vitamin maybe is helping, uh, hasten the
6: demise of the striped bass? I'm afraid that, uh, that's true, um, or could be true. And, um, I'm just afraid that if they continue to fish menhaden at the levels they have been, which is taking, like, literally millions of fish, millions of pounds of fish every summer, um, that uh, not only are the menhaden going to uh, perhaps disappear, but uh, all the striped bass may go too. I want to read a
0: bit from your book. Quote, Everybody was so happy to have plenty of striped bass. Makes it very difficult for people to let go of the success story. That's what's going on today. They can't afford to believe it might not go on forever. Um, Dick, is there a mental block against the idea that bass might again be in danger? Who has that block?
6: Oh, I think a lot of fishermen have it. Uh, because, and you know, I mean, especially because there's so many striped bass in the last ten years, and they've been going up every year. And, and um, you know, the regulations have been getting uh, more and more lax because there are a lot of fish out there to catch. And And, you know, my book, I believe, is a cautionary tale because we'd all like to, I would too, you know, like to sort of rest on what happened 20 years ago and the fact that that worked and the fish have come back. And yet today we got a whole other new set of problems. And uh, I think it's a slowly dawning awareness. I think that, uh, you know, the necessity is for constant vigilance. And uh, that's the message I'm trying to get out there.
0: Well, thanks, Dick. Your book is called uh, Striper Wars, An American Fish Story. Dick Russell, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. So good to be with you today. Now, it used to be that camping divided the hardy and daring from the shrinking violets. Cold water, latrines, and nights on hard ground were all part of the fun of roughing it. But campground managers say few of us care to go that route anymore camping is changing and there are now luxury campsites that provide all the comforts of home if your home comes with room service that is. Robin White has our report on today's Pampered Campers. As a backpacker,
7: I have to admit I was skeptical when I heard about Costa Noah. It's a high-end campsite on the spectacular central coast of California. Here, for about 18 times the cost of a Forest Service campsite, you can sleep out under canvas in a luxury escape with heated mattress pads and a hot tub to soothe your aching muscles. Manager Daniel Medine says many of his customers are in what you might call mixed marriages.
0: We have a lot of couples that have come to visit us where one of the party, and you really can't distinguish whether it was the guy or the gal that wasn't so comfortable with camping, but there's a happy medium. You get the outdoor experience and then you're able to enjoy some creature comforts at the same time.
7: Creature comforts like restrooms with heated floors, queen-size beds with down comforters, terry cloth robes and fancy smelling soaps and shampoos. Outside one tent cabin, some campers who don't usually get close to nature are right now experiencing it firsthand. Where are you from? Marin County. And what's your name? Christine Meller. Okay, Christine.
2: Oh, we've been attacked by birds. Deluxe camping has gone to, like, not so deluxe. We had a dead bird on our doorstep this morning. It's fine.
7: Replete with dead swallows, Costa Noah is the brainchild of Chip Conley. He spotted the exploding market for SUVs in the 1990s. He saw people looking for escape, and he designed Costa Noah to give them somewhere to escape to.
0: What we're trying to do is attract the person who can go and experience nature in a new way without having to walk into the office on Monday morning and having red bloodshot eyes from not having slept all weekend.
7: At the huge recreational equipment co-op REI in Berkeley, they're picking up the theme. Annie Irwin shows me around some of the latest products.
5: There's a tea-for-two table, the blow-up supreme mattress, camp espresso machine. Propane 10 heater, put it right in there, hey, it's just like being in the house, only you're outdoors.
7: There's a hand-cranked blender, solar panels for Game Boy on the Trail, titanium cook sets, pressure-heated showers, and portable sit-down toilets. Can I just show you a couple of things and sure. see if you'd ever buy these? And Probably what you not, think of but them. you could show me. Um, right there, that, that there is a hand-cranked blender. Would you no ever way. no way. See this? Yes. It's a hand-cranked blender. Uh, unnecessary. Could you ever see uh, using one of those, a propane tent heater? No, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't see that now. Well, that's what they say now, but they might get caught by the trend. REI says the hand-crank blender is one of their hottest items. An estimated 850 campsites from California to Georgia offer some sort of luxury service, and they're packed in a year when hotel occupancy is down. Even some KOA campgrounds have organic vegetable stands, web access and wine tasting on Saturday nights. I had to go try this luxury camping for myself. I grabbed my friend Rob Tufel, and we set off to Safari West in Santa Rosa. The promo material calls it Serengeti in the wine country.
0: Tent Camp Adventure at Safari West is a deluxe camping experience at a premier safari park located right over the interstate. Safari West is home to over 350 exotic, endangered, and extinct in the wild African mammals and birds. Extinct in the wild? Extinct in the wild, all hyphens. Is that correct?
7: In the morning, we woke up to the sight of nine giraffes wandering across the field, only 20 feet from our tent cabin. Kelly Verhoeg said it wasn't camping, but she liked it anyway. If it's not camping, what is it? <laughs>
3: pretending you're going to Africa last night sitting in the tent cabin I guess they call it you know I was looking at my husband sitting there and I was like it's like I'm looking at Ernest Hemingway or something we've been taken back in time
5: and you know this is kind of how you would picture it
7: well he didn't look like the big game hunting author Ernest Hemingway to me but who am I to spoil the fun for living on earth I'm Robin White at Safari West
0: Coming up, living with the legacy of thermonuclear bomb tests. Stay tuned to Living Honor.
2: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and Kashi cereals, crackers, and granola bars. Details at kashi.com. The Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support. On the web at kresge.org. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at WKKF.org. This is NPR National Public Radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. In scattered towns across the United States, you'll find communities of folk from the islands of the Pacific. In the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas, for example, people from the five islands and 29 coral atolls of the Marshall Islands have been arriving in search of the same things that draw other immigrants, better jobs, and education. But the Marshall Islanders also bring something else. Memories of the 67 atomic and thermonuclear weapons tests staged there between 1946 and 1958. Hundreds of islanders were evacuated from the atolls where the bombs were exploded. The blast disrupted life there and contaminated the land. Some islanders still cannot go home, and some say they still pay a price in illness and poverty for their Cold War cooperation. From Fayetteville, Arkansas, Jacqueline Froelich has their story.
3: 6,000 miles from the Marshall Islands, there's now an islander neighborhood in the chicken processing town of Springdale,
5: Arkansas.
2: (laughs)
3: When school is out, Islander kids ride bikes and skate between the faded houses. Sitting on a sofa in an open garage, two Islander women sing to eight children, playing quietly at their feet. It's customary for women to keep children at home, says Lumen Benjamin, Arkansas Marshallese community president. Benjamin's home, like others here, is decorated with lots of island mementos, cascades of artificial flowers, and family photographs. He concedes that islanders are here by choice, but maybe not first choice.
8: I miss the water, clear water. (laughs) I miss the oceans. I miss fishing. I always fish every day. There are many other things that are really different from Bagoma. <laughs> we don't have any I haven't seen any sailing canoes over here. <laughs> That's our main transportation, Bagoma. Back,
3: <laughs> back home, Benjamin taught elementary school. Now he makes four times as much money working the midnight shift at a metal siding plant. He says it took a while to get used to the lakes, mountains, shopping centers, even the street lights. And he alludes to another draw besides jobs.
8: The hospitals—they are really big, and they're really as another main reason some of the people want to come over here. They want to be near the these big hospitals because of their uh, sicknesses and these things.
3: Benjamin's family is originally from the Marshall Islands Bikini Atoll, where in 1954 the United States conducted its biggest test, a 15-megaton hydrogen bomb. The operation, codenamed Bravo, was one of many detonated on Bikini, as well as Eniwetok Atoll. The explosion was equivalent to a thousand Hiroshima-sized bombs and pulverized large portions of coral reef, irradiating the land and sea. The U.S. Navy, along with Atomic Energy Commission personnel, evacuated people, including Benjamin's family, from test sites like Bikini, before the tests. They were allowed to go back 20 years later, but then it was determined that drinking water on Bikini was still too radioactive, so six years after that, Islanders had to leave once again. In the meantime, some may have
8: received a dose. Right now, I have a lot of aunties and... And also uncles they died they they had their sicknesses with them until they it's no longer they, their body cannot fight it anymore they I got two this year. they passed away. My sister also passed away last year because of cancers.
3: The testing continued for more than a decade. Islanders on nearby atolls often were not evacuated during the tests. they were deemed to be at a safe distance. Former Marshallese Minister of Health Tony Debrum was a 9-year-old boy fishing with his grandfather on the beach of Likiap Atoll when he witnessed the Bravo test on the northwest horizon.
8: First the flash, uh, which at 187 miles away still managed to blind us. And then uh, I describe it as if we were standing under a glass bowl and someone poured blood on it. The, the whole sky turned red. Uh, The beach was red, the fish I had in my basket were red, my grandpa was red, his net was red. But I keep hearing him say, run, run, run to the house, run to the house. But I couldn't run, I was too scared.
3: Bravo's mushroom cloud rose 100,000 feet up into the atmosphere, and according to the Atomic Energy Commission, fallout reached as far as Memphis, Tennessee. Prevailing winds that morning spread fallout eastward over the populated atolls of Rongelap and Utrecht. Anthropologist Holly Barker has conducted hundreds of ethnographic interviews with survivors. She serves as a senior advisor to the Marshallese Embassy. The fallout from the weapons started dropping out of the sky. They describe it as like a powder, like a mist that made everything foggy and fell to the ground. And they didn't know what it was. They didn't know that it was radioactive fallout. And so they went and they ran to it and they touched it and picked it up and played with it and ate it. And some people would store it in bottles or put it in their pockets or they just didn't know what it was. And they didn't know that it was harmful to them. And so when it fell in their water and they drank that water or that fell on their food and they consumed the food, they didn't understand the connection between uh, starting to feel ill and the radiation. Reno James is one of about 100 people still living who witnessed Bravo and experienced the fallout. He first felt the blast from inside his true room thatched cabin on Utrecht Atoll, downwind east of the Bravo shot. He was 16.
8: And we was heard, uh, hear the uh, noise, a big noise. And our island is shaking and lighting. Some of the... Uh, tree, the coconut fell down, and also after that, the powder is dripping down, and after a couple of hours, the people come sick, and some people, like me, I was vomiting, it's very dizzy. See, my green father, my father's uh, father, he passed away, because he got so many kinds of sick, something is come out on the skin, and uh, just like a mumps. It's really big, some kind of sickness we never you know we never had before, and that's why he died.
3: a u.s Navy ship equipped with medical personnel arrived three days later to treat their radiation sickness. James now has thyroid cancer. The Republic of the Marshall Islands declared independence in 1986, but maintains a strategic relationship with the United States. An agreement allowed the U.S. to keep an army base on Kwajalein Atoll in the Central Marshalls. There, they test ballistic missiles and missile interceptors, support NASA's space operations, and assist the U.S. Space Command with satellite tracking and surveillance. In exchange, the U.S. helps pay for public education, health, and government operations in the Marshalls. And another benefit is one many prospective immigrants would relish. Islanders are free to travel and work in the United States for as long as they wish. The compact also provided compensation for damages from the nuclear testing. A nuclear claims tribunal dispensed $72 million in personal injury claims to 2,000 survivors. Dr. Neil Palafox is a University of Hawaii professor and family practice physician. He also has been a principal investigator for the Department of Energy's Marshall Islands Nuclear Victims Program. He says 50 years after the tests exposed islanders, including those in utero at the time of the tests, those allowed to return early, and cleanup workers still live with effects, including thyroid disease, mental retardation, and many types of cancer.
4: The cancers that have been shown are breast, lung cancer, thyroid cancer, brain cancer, stomach, intestine cancer, skin, mouth cancer, bone cancer, liver cancer, and kidney cancer. All those are, are definitely known to be, have been linked with um, the long-term uh, effects of uh, direct uh, radiation exposure in high
5: doses.
3: Many Marshall Islanders have other health conditions that may not be related to their special history, conditions such as obesity and diabetes. Before European explorers arrived, the indigenous Marshallese caught reef fish and crabs and grew breadfruit, taro and pandanas, in their atolls, sometimes poor sandy soils. The island's carrying capacity was limited. Infant mortality was high, with intermittent typhoons and famine. More outside contact meant food was more abundant, but now it included white flour, rice, and sugar. Locally grown foods were abandoned for convenience. Christian missionaries discouraged birth control. Dr. Palafox says the island's public health system is overwhelmed and cannot cope with the islanders' great needs.
4: They approach the Ministry of Health in the Marshall Islands, but it cannot provide adequate care. And so many of them actually go without uh, the necessary care that they, they should uh, receive.
3: Now overpopulation, the desire for better jobs, dislocation from radioactive atolls and sickness have all triggered a Marshallese diaspora of the island's estimated 60,000 residents, 10,000 have immigrated to the United States, most settling in northwest Arkansas. Arkansas Marshallese Cultural Liaison Carmen chung says her people have something
2: special to offer. It's something that we can learn, and it's not just Marshallese, but the whole world, to know that these people already experienced nuclear war. They know what nuclear war is like. You know, experiencing all the consequences of the fallout and and uh, losing their land and uh, not knowing if it's really safe to be on their islands.
3: In memory of those who have suffered and died from the testing, Chongom organizes an annual Nuclear Victims Day in Springdale. The three-hour-long program featured several processions, testimony from survivors, and a church youth choir. Hundreds of islanders of all ages showed up. Chong Gong for the first time showed a documentary film about the Bravo test. watching islanders sitting motionless, watching themselves on the big screen. Most, like 17-year-old Crystalani Jack, had never seen these unsettling archival images.
2: How did it make you feel? It made me feel sad. Sad knowing that some of the people that was part of the Bikini Island couldn't go back to the Bikini Island because they had poisons over there, so they couldn't go back there to live in their own island.
3: Do you think young people talk about this? Do young Marshallese
2: talk about this? Yeah. Everybody talks about it. Even young kids talk about it. I mean, it's a big thing that happened to the Marshall Islands. They don't don't want to forget it because it's what affected the people over at the Marshall Islands.
3: Now, five decades later, the U.S. State Department says compensation to islanders directly affected by the test program should be considered paid in full. Former Marshallese Minister of Health Tony DeBroom was a co-author of the original compensation agreement.
8: The problem is that the United States is trying to limit its liability to islands that it says were exposed when in fact now we know that many, many more than the four atolls were exposed.
3: DeBroom is referring to the long-held U.S. government position that only four atolls in the Marshall Islands were affected by the nuclear tests. New estimates by the National Cancer Institute, however, indicate that all of the Marshals were exposed to radiation. NCI researchers testified before Congress they estimate 290 more radiation-related cancers still to develop beyond 2004, especially among Islanders who were children during the testing. The Marshallese government is asking for $3 billion in additional compensation.
8: Mr. Chairman, I submit this is a much larger than a legal issue. This is a moral issue.
3: In a packed Senate committee hearing, U.S. Congressman Eni Faleo Mavenga, ranking member of the International Relations Subcommittee on Asia and the Pacific, testified on the Marshall Islands' behalf.
8: The fact is the people of the Marshall Islands are still suffering severe adverse health effects directly related to our nuclear testing program, and they are still unable to use their own lands because of the radiation poisoning. We have a moral obligation to provide for health care, environmental monitoring, personal injury claims, and land and property damaged in the Marshall Islands.
3: But Howard Crowitz, at the U.S. State Department's East Asia and Pacific desk, has a different view. Tape of his Senate testimony was not available, and he declined, through a spokesman, to be interviewed. But he said the United States recognizes there are serious and continuing public health and medical challenges for Marshall Islanders. But he said the United States will already spend $16 million in health care funds in 2005 in accordance with the compact. Since the 1950s, he pointed out, the country has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on health and environmental problems related to the nuclear tests. Crowitz testified that additional expenditures in the billions of dollars are not warranted. Back in Arkansas, physicians are getting used to seeing Islanders in their clinics. One physician interviewed says practitioners are learning they need to admit Marshallese patients to hospital when they first get an infection. Their immune system, she says, seemed to be compromised. To better serve Marshallese with their unusual health issues, providers have been gearing up. Medical anthropologist Deanna Perez-Williams surveyed Islanders for Northwest Arkansas Radiation Therapy Institute's Cancer Prevention and Outreach Program. One of the main reasons they have migrated to the United States is because of their health. However, ideally, they would like to stay on their homeland. They would like to stay there and make a living,
4: have the health resources, have the educational resources and benefits,
3: because that's their home. for now, these Pacific Islanders are choosing the Ozark Mountains as their home, away from home. For Living on Earth, I'm Jacqueline Froelich in Fayetteville, Arkansas.
0: right on your rate. Let's focus on a little ratio here, to A little bit quicker through the water. Little four right with your stir hair. We leave you this week on a cruise down the river.
1: Work all those blades off the water, guys. All those blades off. Solid catch, solid finish.
0: Every summer, Boston's best-known river is a host to several crews, in fact, Dennis Foley captured the sounds of these long and pointed shell boats racing up and down the banks of the Charles River. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, and Jeff Young, with help from Kelly Cronin and James Kerwood. Our interns are Tobin Hack and Allison Smith. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. And we wish Christopher Bolick a fond farewell and a hearty congratulations as he heads off to the marriage altar and a new life in Connecticut. We'll miss you, Chris.
8: Good job, guys. Keep it up.
0: I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening.
2: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and an array of Kashi products. Details at kashi.com. Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676.
0: This is
4: NPR, National Public Radio.